All right, welcome back to the Sunset Sound Roundtable. It's June 2nd, 2021. It's a very special day today because we're always talking about the famous bands that have recorded here, all the history, but today we're going to get into the equipment. And in 1967, a Sound Techniques console was put into Studio 2. Here to talk about that is Sound Techniques owner, revivalist, Danny White, yep. Brian Kehu has an interesting affiliation with Sound Techniques, sure. and Sound, Sunset Sound owner, Paul Camerata. How is everybody? Great. Really Thank good. you for having us. Good to be yeah. here. Thank good you. Memorial Day, Brian? I worked straight through. Get any potato salads? <laughs> I worked straight through. <laughs> no days out. <laughs> Paul, let me ask you first. So good. 1967, the Sound Techniques 22 input A range is put into Studio 2. Correct. By your father, Tutti Camerata. That's right. You know, I was pretty young then, teenager, but uh, I do remember him coming home from one of his uh, European English trips. Uh, he would always go there and do recording, mostly orchestrational, and uh, I'm sure it was a Disney-related project. And uh, he came home and he said, uh, told me and my mom that he had bought a board for Sunset because we needed a board for Studio 2. We really didn't have a board in there. Two had kind of opened up and it had, uh, I think it just had a makeshift board, maybe a Neumann, not really sure. Yeah. Um, I vaguely remember it. Anyway, so he was like, yeah, I met this gentleman. Uh, it must have been um, David Frost. Jeff Frost. Jeff Frost. Why do I yeah. keep saying that? Jeff Frost. And uh, I went toward the factory and I uh, was impressed. And I think that this is going to be uh, a great board for us, a, you know, a non-custom built board, which we were always accustomed to. That's only the only kind of boards we knew back then. Also, Sunset Sound was the first one in the United States to own first this English board. one to bring in this board in the United States. And I've subsequently found out the first English console. In the United States. Yeah. So, which is kind of a big deal. So By eight months, right, Danny? Uh, something like that. So um, Sunset Number 2 would have been operational with the Sound Techniques A-Range desk in uh, April of 67, according to, to the records here at the studio. And then uh, the Neve console, uh, well, the next desk would have been um, the, the one in uh, 68, that uh, Jack Holtzman bought for uh, the new Electra then when he moved it from New York over yeah. to La Cienega. And that was, uh, we saw, we've got video of the doors in there in June of 68. So, and then uh, the Neve console, the first Neve console that we know about is the Vanguard in New York City. And that was in later 68. So maybe over a year, something like that. Yeah, It's uh, just very interesting how that all, that turn of events. Paul touched on something that is kind of interesting if you look at the arc of history. Before this, people did make their own mixing boards. You couldn't look in a catalog and go, I'll take that one or I'll take that one. It was not common to do that, although you could buy something small for a radio station. But what Paul's talking about is you wanted to design a 16-channel board and eight, whatever you wanted with EQ, and you would order that up custom-made by some company. Mm -hmm. And then Sound Techniques was one of the first companies Developing in England alongside other ones like Neve at the time that were doing consoles that you could buy and ship around the world and sure. install in your facility. The, the desk that Tootie, Tootie bought, though, uh, it, really, it really was a custom desk. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at, <clears throat> for an example, the desk here at Delane Lee, okay, that's a completely different design. That's only, that's only about nine months off. 
when you look at this console, it's radically different. And, and Brian, you can speak a little bit about the impedance side of it. I mean, it's expanded in many, many, many ways. So this was at the time a one-off. Yeah, yeah. but it, it became yeah. a model. It became, it became a line. Yeah. And strangely enough, some of you that know recording history, well, it's called an A-range. That's what they called it. That was their premier line. It was the top of the line for what they did. And they made a few consoles using these same modules and parts for, for example, Electra across town mm-hmm. had one too. Um, certainly getting something like this designed up had input from engineers, but Jeff Frost was the head of the company and had been doing it, uh, working engineering and technical things for years in London while developing the idea of this new company that would be called Sound Techniques. Yep. Let's uh, rewind a little bit. Uh, you both have amazing relationships with Sound Techniques. Danny, we're both from Indiana. Yep. You were started studios, ran studios, were in bands. Total music background. Yeah. When did you first find out about sound techniques? When did you first hear the term? It was a cool story about that board. Um, well, I was a big fan of everything that came out of Trident Studio uh, growing up because, I mean, a lot of those records, you know, again, we talked earlier. I mean, I grew up in Indiana in a cornfield, basically, uh, population 50. Uh, and whenever you bought a brand new album, that was a big deal. You know, reading, you would read every little, that's how Sunset Sound is burned in my brain because I've had all those records and I go, oh, Sunset Sound, you know, that record. And we all have probably common experiences there. But I had an opportunity to buy um, a Trident A-Range back in the late 90s. And um, it was actually the desk that uh, was in Studio 2, Studio 1, and that was the 48 monitor console. It was 28 input and, and they could lock up two 48 tracks which was a big deal in 76, I think, when it was built. So I bought this desk, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, man, this is all of those records. Hey, Jude, uh, you know, Elton John and David Boy and all that. And I buy it. I get it back to my studio in Phoenix, and I get it in there. And and there was something wrong. There were some Jensen Transformers or something in this intersection, and there was something off about it. Uh, We bought it from Image Recorders here uh, over Mm -hmm. in uh, uh, Santa Monica. Boulevard. And um, I called my friend Jeff Harris, who was in town. Jeff worked for Jordy Hormel. He worked here at the village for many, many years as main tech over there. So I said, Jeff, can you come over here? I, I want you to see this this new console I have. It's a Trident A-Range. And I need you to look at these pro- this problem at the center section. So he came over and I said, there it is. You know, that's the, that's the desk. You know, all those records were recorded on. And he goes, um, no, no, not really. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I just I went out to LA. I just bought this. I just installed it. And he goes, no, those desks, those consoles are all called sound techniques. And um, that was the first time I ever heard the term. And this was maybe 99 or something like that, Brian. I don't even remember when I bought it. It was something like that. So, um, you know, it was kind of interesting. 15 years later, I would end up with a company I'd never heard of. Okay. Yeah. So it was just kind of funny. But Jeff Harris, you know, been, being a, a guy who it was in the business for so long and, and still is, uh, he, he knew exactly. But this is a logical assumption. There's a studio called Trident Studios in London. Very famous, really high-end uh, records came out of there. Very famous stuff. But they had made Trident consoles too. So their implication was, and sometimes they did this on purpose, they told people those records were done with our consoles because they were trying to sell the Trident A-Range, that same name that they had borrowed from Sound Techniques. And uh, those are incredible boards. What you bought was top-of-the-line, world-class, amazing console. Oh, yeah. 
But we didn't quite know this history. It was an unknown because this company we keep mentioning, Sound Techniques, really is still an unknown company. Yes. How did uh, how did your father Tootie first discover it? Was it in Abbey Road? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't really have the answer to that. I think when he was over in England, uh, he must have interfaced with someone that suggested, or he made mention that he was looking for a board, and. Um, I guess there was a recommendation, so he went to look at it. I got a theory on this, Paul, and I haven't yeah. asked you about this, but I heard that post World War II, mm-hmm. that and for a long period of time, and maybe you can jump in on this too, Brian, that that orchestral sessions in London were extremely inexpensive when compared to New York or or Los Angeles. Th- that's why he went there. Okay, fantastic musicians. Okay, uh, in in incredible settings like churches, halls. Right. Uh, legendary type rooms, and they would usually roll in because I went on a few of them with them. Well, more than a few, and then they would roll in like a remote desk, right? Know, so, like a you know something they packed up in the back of a van and bring it in. Yeah. So who knows what it was, but um, but anyway, go ahead and finish. No, your- I'm just thinking that um, you know Sound Techniques, the studio. There was a studio called Sound Techniques, and that's how this all came about. Is they didn't have the money to buy anything, and there really wasn't that much to even buy at that time. So they built their own console, and so word got out uh, about the orchestral sessions at Sound Technique Studio. And I would guess that that's probably how your dad ended up at Sound Technique Studio in Chelsea, London, to check out the room for orchestral dates. That could be. Yeah. And that would have been the first manufacturer of a board, wouldn't it, in England? Well, I mean, uh, Rupert built uh, a solid-state desk uh, in 1964, which uh, is widely considered, I guess, as the first solid-state desk. But, uh, Brian, that picture there, that's the the first desk that Jeff built. That's in 64. He built that for – that's also (laughs) solid-state. That was for – that was built for Frederick, a man named Frederick Baco, who was an RCA organist. Uh, you know, back in the day in the film, uh, the theaters, you'd have the organ player and he'd play along. And, you know, these guys were superstars back then. And so this guy obviously had some money. And And Jeff told me when I was in England, when I went out there to pick this stuff up, is that when Baco ordered that console from him in 64, uh, he used the money that they made off of that to help build the, the studio in Chelsea. Oh, yeah. Okay. And build their own console. And the Chelsea studio, that was a live room? A large yeah, room? Big, large room, yeah. Big, well, yeah. Maybe he was recording there then. Yeah, possible. Could be. The board makes its way to Sunset Sound Studio 2, and then everybody wants one after that, though. The Sound Techniques, is they're building them all over. Yeah, without Tootie having commissioned the Studio 2 for Sunset Sound, this desk would have never existed, which is... That's actually an original picture there of Trident number one. We'll put this up. So, so yeah, we'll yeah. Get, you can do that. But that's that's an original picture that Jeff gave me as long as uh, us uh, with all these other pictures. And without Tootie doing that and having the foresight and the direction of that, those desks, the, the first desk at Trident would not have existed or the Electra, not in the form that they were. Danny, what number board was this board that um, you got? You if know? you want, do you want to count that one? You, you I guess you could count sure. that one. So you would count that one, uh, then the Chelsea desk, then Delane Lee, mm-hmm. and this would be number four. 
Number four. The okay. fourth. That's including what is essentially a prototype. And then Electra's was five? Uh, Trident was five. Five. Electra was six. Okay. Got it. Yeah. But this is a company that, as opposed to we know about these famous companies like API and Neve that made hundreds of consoles, oh, yeah. they made 10 consoles of this kind, maybe? And There were 14. 14 total. total. Yeah. Just big, high-quality stuff. There's very few made. And so the people that experienced them, not only when they were new and in those days, but people experienced them later, like you might have seen an API lunchbox or have some Neve modules yeah. in your rack. That wasn't possible. Sound Techniques was not out there for people to try. And those who used it often remember it, but they, uh, Joe Boyd, Ken Scott, people like that yeah. are like, oh, Absolutely. great console. But who had experience with it? Yeah. You know, it's like driving a super rare Bugatti Bayron who's ever had experience to do that, <laughs> you know? Electra Records used to do all their recording here, and then they build their own studio, and Jack was good friends with Tootie. So do you think yeah. Tootie gave him the heads up on this? Like, you should buy one of these boards. I think it was probably my father, but then along with Bruce Botnick, who was uh, oh, yeah. doing all the Doors records and a lot of the Electra work, and he was a staff engineer. And um, I believe he consulted with um, on the Electra studios when they built them and uh, probably put in the word that, you guys should buy a uh, a Sound Techniques board. And then yeah. we ended up brokering the board to them yep. for, for the studios on La Cienega. And Jack Holtzman, who your dad uh, at that time, and we all have some paperwork that indicate this, that he would be the uh, U.S. distributor for Sound Techniques. Right. Um, Jack, uh, he has been such a help to us. I mean, this guy just jumped in and, and he loved that console. There's some really great pictures of Jack and uh, working on the, the Electra desk. And there must have been a really great relationship. And I've never really talked to you about this, Paul, but there must have been a really great relationship between Tootie and Jack because it seems like, and with Bruce, because yeah, Bruce. Bruce was here and then they, he was at Electra and he helped build that and, and so on and so forth. I don't think Alan Emig was involved with Electra, but I know he I was here, of course. Yeah, here, but, he, but he'd already, uh, I think, departed here by then. Yeah. But how would you describe your relationship, that, that working relationship between your, your dad and Jack? Because there were so many, if you look at these records, man, there's so I many know. of Sunset and then they're Electra. They were mixed at Sunset or recorded at, at Electra, whatever, you know? Yeah, Electra was our first, well... If you discount AM, AM was our first big client, uh, record client, but then it was Electra. Yeah. And um, I think a lot has to do with um, certainly Bruce Botnick. I mean, his talent and his relationship with uh, probably with Jack, I'm sure, and, yeah. and Paul Rothschild, the producer, because Paul Rothschild was the main producer for Electra and he produced most of the records that we did here on Electra's label. Not all of them, but most of them. Certainly all the Doors records. Yeah. And um, I'm sure, you know, Jack, I really can't comment on how close my father was or wasn't with Jack Holtzman. I mean, he was an executive at the label. I sure. know my father was interacting on a daily basis with Paul Rothschild yeah. and uh, certainly Bruce Botnick because he was our employee. But um, don't really have any knowledge of that with Jack. Speaking of studios and consoles, it's something to keep in mind that it's completely different now than it used to be. 
if you wanted to go record somewhere, they had a tape machine, a console, some microphones, and the room. They're not interchangeable. You can move some mics around, but you're not going to get a different tape machine. You're going to use the console they have, and you're going to use the room. So the combination that could be magic or could just be good sounding that people choose, I want to record here, maybe because of the staff, but quite often it's because they can get that sound that I want. And if you're having great results in a room, be it the doors or whoever, Mm -hmm. you'll say other people want that sound, they want that style, they want that quality. So in those days, we had one preamp, let's say 16 channels on a board like this, on everything. It's on the drum overheads, it's on the vocal mic, it's on the strings. Mm -hmm. And then the EQs are the same, going in through the board and recording. And again, when you mix, it uses the same console. So the the board really was the sound of a whole record completely. Yes, you can have a different engineer and producer, but you cannot change that factor of the console and the room, and especially the tape machine as well back then, too. They imparted their sound to make the whole record sound uniform. I think the other big component, too, back in those days, which has completely changed now, is that engineers were married to a particular facility. So... um, Unlike now, uh, engineers are independent. They go wherever mm-hmm. that the uh, producer or the artist wants to wants to go. But back in those days, Bruce Botnick was our engineer, and he right. only worked here. And if you wanted to use Bruce Botnick because uh, you heard a Doors record or whatever, you didn't call him up and say, well, come on over to my studio. No, you have to come to Sunset Sound. And that was a big deal then. And right. Bruce was a big component and subsequently many others after him, but he was a big component in solidifying our status as a, as a number one studio at the time. Yep. Yeah. You've told me that they all came to studio one cause that was your father and him. That That's was right. And you know, they came here for the studio, but they really, you know, they also came here for Bruce because he was a great engineer. Absolutely. And he texted me the other couple of days ago and said he couldn't make this, but yeah. he said if we do another one. Oh, there's going to be then, a part two, then three. He, he'll come <laughs> over. <laughs> That's good, because we want to hear from Bruce. Of course. <laughs> so let's go through some of the monumental albums that were done, not only in Studio 2, but everywhere. So yeah. like we all know Zeppelin 2. We all know Zeppelin 4. Alice Cooper. Frank Zappa, Hot Rats. Um, help me out here, Danny. We got... Earth, Wind, and Fire was done here as well. Yeah, the Stones, that was the Rolling Stones, Rolling Stones um, numerous Sweet, albums. Sweet Baby James, Sweet Baby James, James Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got um, Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown. I think that's connected to Al Schmidt. I oh, think he yeah. was on that. I know he did Late for the Sky. That was over at Electra, but he did a piece of that, and he talked about the sound techniques uh, desk. Um, one of my favorite records is Ray Manzarek's Golden Scarab. It's it's a very it's obscure so record, record. Yeah. but it's it's fabulous. And it was all done with by by Bruce uh, in Studio 2, tracked and mixed in there. And, wow, uh, I didn't even know he had a solo album. It's great. It's a really cool record. Brian? Well, I was going to say around the world, though, one of the things that that's interesting is the only studios that had these boards were major studios. They were not like yeah. hole-in-the-wall places. So... Yeah. Back in London, they're tracking things like the early Elton John records, almost all the early Bowie records up until Aladdin Sane was the first one not done. So if you hear Hunky Dory, which is a great sounding record, Life on Mars. Um, I love the Lou Reed Transformer record, which is also done at Trident at the point. And uh, if you listen to it very closely, it's kind of a Bowie record done with Mick Ronson and those guys supporting Ken Scott, engineering and producing, putting it together with Bowie. 
as the ringleader if you want to make a great Lou Reed record. And it's yeah. incredible, the sound of it. Yeah. Uh, Alice Cooper. So Paul has some good stories um, mm. about that session. I had the Do good you? fortune of a few years of playing for Alice Cooper uh, when I lived in Phoenix. He lived down the road, and I would play pickup gigs for him and his friends. Um, but Paul was here during that time uh, for Muscle of Love, and it was kind of kind of crazy. Yeah, uh, I think period. I was working. So that was 70, 71? 73. 73. Oh, yeah. was it that late? Okay. Yeah. So I was working the summer. I'm sure that's what it was because uh, I was still in school. But I would work here in the summer sometimes and um, and be a runner or, you know, go for that kind of thing. <laughs> and I remember they were loading in. I remember um, the band was loading in and the instruments and they were going to camp out for a while. This was this was going to be a long term project, probably over a month, something like that. So this uh, this big truck backs up this u-haul or something and they they roll up the the top you know and 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 i'm like wow what's in there all of a sudden i realized the whole truck is filled with alcohol and, you know and wow. you know and you know i'm just probably getting into you know having a couple beers or whatever at that age but uh i'm like oh my god so we had this um kind of overdub room off the uh off the control room to the left, which is now the machine room. But back then it was a kind of a vocal overdub room. Yeah. It had a little glass. So they didn't have anywhere. So they were like, well, where do we put the, the alcohol? And they were like, eh, let's put it in the overdub room. This room's probably, I don't know, 12 by 14, something like that. When they got done, it was to the ceiling with beer, uh, Jack Daniels. I mean, I can't remember what else they had. I mean, it was mostly <laughs> beer, but it was a lot of whiskey too. And it was crazy. I'm like, what is this for? And they said, oh, this is just for the sessions. They'll be drinking on this. And I'm like, really? Wow. Really? It's rock and roll. Yeah. I wish we had a picture of that. Though. Last record with the original yeah. uh, Alice Cooper band's uh, lineup as well. It's called Muscle of Love. Yeah. yeah. Muscle of Love. And they did the photo uh, in, across the street. There's a place called Crossroads of the yeah, World. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they dolled it up as kind of a place where these crazy sailors And they had the sailor outfits. Yeah. Because <laughs> I got outfits. a picture of them in the courtyard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not far to go across the street and shoot no. that. Yep. Yeah. Crazy. We don't want to forget, uh, speaking about Electra and Sound Techniques, yep. Love. That was probably one of the first albums that was done. Band Love. Yeah. Forever yeah, Change. Yeah. Uh, that's Bruce Botnick. I think it was, I think the whole thing was tracked in one. Um, what it had to be, 1967. Yeah. Bruce mixed it on the Sound Techniques desk in two. But, you know, when, if we can get Bruce here, he can clear it up. But I think the whole thing was tracked in Sunset One, which would have been the Alan Embig desk yeah. at that time. I think so. Um, there may have been some overdubs in two. I don't know. But we do know that much. Studio Two was 66, right? 66 uh, when it first kind of came online as a studio. Like I said, with yeah. uh, some obscure little board we had in there. But it didn't get full board until we had the sound techniques. Let's talk about the components of that board, the A-range 22 yeah. input. What's What gives it the sound it has? Well, I'd like to bring Brian in on this, but I could, because Brian's kind of, you know, he's been on board a lot longer than I have. If I'm central casting, he's the John the Baptist. <laughs> in the, He's the guy out there shouting in the wilderness, go, this is amazing. Or, or in automotive terms, you walk in a barn in the middle of England, and there's the 1959 Aston Martin DB1 at Shelby. Carol Shelby won Le Mans with in 59. It goes, nobody knows about this. You're, you're trying to tell everybody, you know? And so 
Brian has a lot of um, information before my time. Of course, we know it now. But I would say that um, it was just a very classic English design. I mean, it was all everything was uh, the output transformers were the best you could you, you could get 50% nickel which a lot of people weren't doing back then every transformer in the console was 80% nickel um that's that's really really expensive to do um the amplifiers they're dual class a amplifiers so you're class a discrete all the way through this thing um one of the most interesting things that we actually kept uh, throughout the product line, and it is on the Sunset Sound uh, limited edition two-rack unit that we'll be talking about in a little bit, is the impedance selector. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Brian was the first guy to hit me to this. I had the module when I came back from England, but I really, I knew what it was, but I wasn't really sure about the, all the intricacies of it. Um, s- since then, you know, uh, We've we've got a demo unit over at British Grove right now in Studio One, and, and I, they called me a couple of weeks ago, and they said when we put up a Coles forty thirty eight and and threw that down to sixty uh, sixty uh, the impedance at sixty, uh, we've never heard that microphone come alive like that. But I would have never really been hip to that without Brian. I'm like I, I, this story that you've told me sometime in the past about. You know, you do a lot of mastering and, and, and all of that, and you got a big history with that. But you told me something about you. You were able to actually hear Sound Techniques recordings. Yeah, when I was doing uh, endless projects for Warner Brothers, we mentioned the Van Halen previously on another mm-hmm. talk or two. But they're always bringing me tapes from around the world from their vault, which were recorded, and we want to look for outtakes and other things. But as I heard the master tape, you're really aware of each room, each facility being different sounding. And the the sounds from one particular studio have a kind of consistency to them. But I kept hearing things from Sunset Sound, from Electra, and Trident in London. And I was like, wow, these sound great. Why do these tapes sound so good? And even sometimes bad drummer, bad miking technique mm-hmm. still sounds good. And I realized in those days there was that console picking up everything. All these studios had different mics they had different rooms but they sounded so good and it was part of my beatles research doing this big recording the beatles book that we found out that was a sound techniques board no one i could talk to knew anything about that we didn't know what the company was but i finally found out that these rooms all had the thing in common and i was like those boards must be amazing at one point i worked at a guitar shop and one of these modules from electra came in a few of them were sitting there and i'm like well i wish i could hear these i know what these are but I don't know any way to hook them up and yeah. get them going. Then they disappeared to somebody else. And years later, I went to find the owner. Oh, it was Jeff Frost. And he lived in London, but he was long, 30 years on from making the boards and said, only you and a guy named Liam, Liam Watson in London. Liam's a very retro, traditional eight-track tape, wears a lab coat. <laughs> he did the famous White Stripes album that was very popular. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, he and I were both going, those recordings are amazing. Whatever sound techniques was is the sound I want to get. It's the sound I want to have. But I can't find channels or anything. Would you make some more? And Jeff said, just no one cares but you and this guy in London. <laughs> and It's exactly no one cares. It didn't really, I mean, it didn't explode. It didn't last a long time. They tried a few other options, later consoles that didn't go. But it was great quality. When it worked, they made hit records. But... I tried to find the stuff. And finally, Jeff said, you know, I think we'll try to make 
based on the original design, a module. And then around that time, I found two originals, paid a lot of money for them, broken, paid a lot of money to get them working. And they sounded amazing. Not just good, but like, wow. They're not everything to everybody. I wouldn't say they're the standout to some people. But to me, the way it sounds with a special kind of high end and a special kind of tone. But we were specifically talking about this knob on the front end. When you have a mic preamp from any company, we still buy them. They have a volume control on it, sometimes a pad or something. But this one has a selectable three-way impedance. So low impedance, middle, and high impedance, roughly. And each one has three settings for padding down the signal if you want it clear straight through or padded down. So it has these weird hieroglyphics like circles and triangles that don't make sense if you don't know what it is. But what I found is each one of those settings is a different sound of warmth or crystal top end or not, or mud if you want to get there. It's meant to adapt to the different microphones, be it a condenser mic or a tube mic or a maybe dynamic or even a ribbon that have different impedances. You're trying to match it to the right microphone, which does open up the sound of some of those mics. Or even in my case, I wanted to shut it down sometimes. When you want a SM57, you want it. You don't want the big hi-fi mic. Yeah. So you're getting these tone controls that respond in a different way. And it's actually tapping different parts of that mic pre-transformer. Most companies use only one. This has three options per input. And so I found that to be a real shaper of sound. Plus you've got EQ, which is beautiful sounding. Very simple top and bottom end EQ on these old ones. And yet, that's what they made those records with. Very powerful. I love Brian. He goes on these quests for things. Anything that's cool, he's attached to. I mean, what was that, 2005, roughly, is, you were doing that? It was 2004 and five. I was talking to Jeff, I think, about making something. And his original concept was, he said, oh, well, how big should I make the desk? And should I put a reverb sends on it? Should I put solo mutes? And I said, wait, we're not recording that way anymore. We don't necessarily need a big console. We need channel strips, which have... Like mic pre and EQ is really what people want if you want the sound of a board. Do we need a fader? And I said, maybe. Fader for output would be good. So we started talking, and he had Robin Wood, who was his original engineer. Robin engineered great things like Jeff, I mean, uh, Nick Drake's record, things like that. John Wood. John Wood, excuse me. And uh, put together some prototypes for me of the old sound, and I put them up against the originals, and I was like, boy, these are great. But the originals are that much better. And Jeff started saying that I think it's the Transformers. I can't get the old ones I had. Um, I I bought these off the shelf. That's what's in your prototypes. And I felt that that was probably the difference too. But then Jeff said, I'm really kind of not ready to restart a whole company to do trade shows and advertise. I want to sell sound techniques to somebody out there who would get it. And I felt kind of bad about that because I thought, who will know about this company? I didn't really know people that knew the name. And Liam Watson and myself were championing and kind of excited by it, but not many people had that experience with something. Then he mentioned a name, Danny White. Well, I think that without without Brian, this is this is a fact. Without Brian actually, you know, finding that proverbial Aston Martin in the barn under a cover, which was Sound Techniques and its owner, Jeff Frost. Without that initial impetus to kind of scoot him along the way, hey, can you can do this? You can do this. People do care, you know. Uh, I would have never. There would have never been a position for for that company to to be bought when when I showed up over there. There's another yeah. name. Matt Frost is Jeff's son, and uh, he was excited by his dad's history, 
said, why don't we build a website just for the history of sound techniques? Yes. And it wasn't a going concern. They were still making recordings, actually. Jeff was producing cool video series and things like that in his own studio. But Matt got together and we both shared a lot of ideas. I think this album was mixed on it and that album was tracked on it and so forth. Started putting together all these, you know, just announcements and then a Twitter feed and things like that. Suddenly people wrote in and said, oh my God, the Nick Drake records are the best thing. Jethro Tull is the coolest record ever made. And on and on, people kept writing in about the records that were done on there. And it built up a following where people who were engineers and producers said, I want that sound. And they could recognize it too. So this was real impetus to get them into manufacturing something again, which was good. Because it had been 30 years. It left Studio 2 here. Uh, well, Sound, Sound Techniques died out in 74, 75? 74. Yeah, the company, the company that we bought was the original company number. The funny thing about Jeff, I don't know if I ever told you this, but he kept the company up. The company yeah, it's went dormant in 74. But every year he uh, renewed the original company's house number since 1964. Oh, wow. Mm. So whenever, there was nothing going on. Nothing. He just, I think it was just his special thing. And for the company's house, a few hundred pounds a year, he just wanted to keep it. And when we bought the company, that's what we bought mm. was the original from what it was, you know. Danny and I had met previously. I was researching the famous Trident A-range consoles, yep. partly subversively because I wanted to prove that so many great records were made on the modules I have, sound techniques that I was all into. And I was trying to prove that Trident had actually made a great console, no question, but they were misleading people to say that all these Bowie records and so forth were done on Trident when they were not. So in talking to people, and my dear friend Ken Scott has really been a champion of it too, saying, you know, this is the good stuff. Absolutely. This is a lot of the records he made that were famous, uh, my Vision Orchestra and things were done with consoles of that era, but specifically the recordings made in Trident and here and Electra, to me, are the three best sounding studios of the time. And so it was fun to be able to dig into the history, find out more and more. We're still learning every day and trying to clarify for history's sake, this is actually done in here or maybe mixed on this. There's differentiation between that, but most of the time people tracked and mixed on the same board. A lot of times. Wow. It's, you know, we want to urge everyone to go to soundtechniques.com because the story, you know, we have a couple hours now, but there's so much more you've been sharing with me. Yeah. And it's so amazing what you've done. And cool photos. I love seeing all the pictures keep turning up year after year. Somebody's found a different console photograph, uh, Pink Floyd recording on one. You see there's Deep Purple did a lot of their early records on these things. And Peter Green with Fleetwood Mac. I kept finding out that the, my favorite records were recorded on them. and I still love API and I love Neve. They're great sounding and they're very useful. We now have choices of things, but but when I was listening to the underdog kind of thing, it's always cool to find out what people don't always know and that there's something in there that's good quality that we we can investigate, you know. Yeah. There's a, there's no one best console. Mm -hmm. You know, old 80 series Neves, they sound amazing. Yeah. You know, old APIs, they sound great. A um, couple things I did want to ask you, Paul, yeah. was uh, just a couple records. Are we? Do we have time? Oh, we have hours. Okay. Um, <laughs> pizza, I just I just wanted know. to hit on. First of all, I wanted to ask you about Led Zeppelin two. Yes. Uh, I've never, I've never, for some reason, I've never made up my mind about what was actually done here for Led Zeppelin two and and done in Studio two. Uh, the other 
The other piece of the Zeppelin uh, puzzle is Zeppelin IV. Now, we do know that the first mixes of Led Zeppelin IV, the entire record, was mixed in two. Um, right. We do know the only, the only track that actually made it to the record was when the Levy Bricks, which was which is a standout track on the, but, on the original on the original release. album Correct. but can you tell me a little bit about that that association with led zeppelin jimmy page and andy johns and yeah so those guys. you know i'm i've always had a, a dear spot in my heart for led zeppelin always been a led zeppelin fan um so when I got older, I knew that they were recording here back in the day because my father came home and told me. Right. And, you know, even back then I was going to the forum concerts and, you know, <laughs> That's the big I mean, I was a fan, you know, you imagine so, that. Yeah. It was just amazing. <sighs> so, but they were closed sessions because yeah. I would ask him, is there anyone, you know, we can come down there. And he's like, no, it closed sessions. In fact, I remember coming down here one time and they had a big plaque on the door closed session no entry you know it was like you didn't go in um so you know i started doing some research probably in the 70s and early 80s about um what led zeppelin was done here especially when i was uh, acquiring their gold records or their platinum records right if you've seen our lobby I, I kind of put on a big push in the early 80s to get all the back records that we didn't have and Led Zeppelin was certainly a priority of mine to do that. So they had a box set. Um, this this goes way back. And, you know, I had bought that and I was looking at that. And I came across Led Zeppelin too. And we have credit on a whole lot of love. So either part of it was tracked or part of it was mixed. It doesn't really say. But a whole lot of love is what was done in two. So that I can, I could, you know. Yeah. Well, we know the vocal was done, right? Didn't we? And I've heard that yeah. the tracking was for the whole thing was done, but you know the vocal was done. Uh, def- definitely the vo- the lead vocal, definitely mm-hmm. um, yeah. could prove that part of it. There are there are some sources that say the whole thing was tracked in there. I don't know whether it was there Olympic or uh, Mobile Units, Stones mm-hmm. Mobile or whatever at that time. Maybe they weren't even. That that may be pre Stones Mobile, Brian. Could anyway, be. Paul, yeah, but so. That's all I know about Led Zeppelin 2. That's a little hazy. But um, Led Zeppelin 4, there's a little more clarity on. So recently when they did, they've been going through each each album and remastering it and releasing outtakes and additional material. for. So when they got to 4, they released the Led, Ze- uh, the Led Zeppelin 4 <coughs> Sunset Sound Disc. So this is... The entire disc is work that we did in Studio Two on the sound techniques. And um, Andy Johns was here probably in the mid to late 2000s. And he was talking to us. This is when he was still alive. And he was talking to us about doing Zeppelin Four. And he goes, now, whether or not his mind was completely, you know, I don't know, focused at the time about exactly what went on. But he said, you know, you cut Stairway to Heaven in Studio 2. We cut that in there. And uh, I'm like, really? What do you mean you cut? we cut that in there? And he says, no, we cut that rec- that that song in, in Studio 2. Now, whether or not that's the version 
that got on the record is another story because if you got this uh, the Sunset Sound disc of Led Zeppelin IV that right. was re-released, yeah. those are a lot of alternate takes and alternate songs that were done in studio too, right. but they weren't released on the original record. So, like you said, the only thing on the original record is the mix of when the levees when the levee breaks. Yeah. But if you there is a you know a stairway to heaven version. I think the stairway to heaven mix is really really interesting because not for any other reason to me, but the sound of Sunset Sounds chambers. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of chamber on there. The guitars up front. Brian, jump in here. If he, I mean. Um, you know that really sounds like Sunset Sound to me. It's a really it's 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 ethereal more than the record. The record's heavier, which probably the mix they did at Olympic was probably maybe the better choice because of how that record. But the Sunset Sound mix is very 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 unique. So that would have had to be the Studio One chamber because the other okay. two the other two chambers didn't exist yet. Okay, so you were running lines from two to one. Yeah, we okay. always had lines. So. Uh, and we could use the chamber in one as long as nobody was in there working or they were working, say, just maybe mixing or, or uh, doing certain things. We could use the chamber. But if nobody was in there, then it was, you know, easy right. to use. So that would have been the chamber that, that was on that record. Um, the other thing that I remember, I remember hearing a radio interview on like KLOS in town and I can't remember the DJ. It might have been um, oh, the famous guy that was on. I think he has a show on spot on um, Cirrus XM now, Deep Tracks. But um, he was talking about being down here at Sunset Sound. And Led Zeppelin was here in Studio 2. And they were calling all the hot and heavy musicians in town to come in. And they were getting played Stairway to Heaven and they were getting blown <laughs> away. Awesome. Wow. And this, you know, I mean, the names that he was, you know, like, oh yeah, we had George Harrison in, we had uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix stop by, yep. you know, we had this and that. And, I mean, he was, they were talking. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't Jimi Hendrix, but. because Whoever wrote, was around. But whoever was around came down yeah. And, yeah. and listened to the, the, they were blowing him away with this Led Zeppelin four. They knew it was going to be a huge record. And that was here. They were doing that. Was Led Zeppelin four supposed to be Brian? You know the answer. This really like more rock and roll because three was soft and acoustic. Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. you'd consider three the odd one out though. It's just the D turn left and four is just a return to. But it's I mean, Stairway to Heaven half acoustic. There's a lot of stuff on there that definitely Battle of Evermore that is still keeps one foot in the folky scene. So yeah. But Jamie's such a great acoustic guitar player. Why would you not want an acoustic song or many on a Led Zeppelin record too? Yeah. Uh, talking about Studio 2 and all the famous albums in there, Ringo did two albums in there. Yeah. The last time the Beatles were ever in a recording studio was in Studio 2 at Sunset Sound. So they did Goodnight Vienna first. Second. Second. It was Ringo first and yeah. then Goodnight Vienna. Okay. So the Ringo album would have been done in the Sound Techniques. Yeah. The Ringo was a Sound Techniques record and then Goodnight Vienna was Actually, probably the first recording done on the new Bushnell desk that that Tootie had ordered, and they were took forever right. to get. It did. So um, I think that was probably the the Ringo rec. The I'm sorry, Goodnight Vienna would have been roughly August of uh, 1974. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'll toss it back to you. Paul. Yeah, I mean the Ringo record. Um, I mean, legendary people on this on this record. It was like. 
the next Beatles record. Um, my understanding is that, um, well, we have pictures. I mean, we've seen pictures of John Lennon was on the session. George Harrison was on the set session. I think Eric Clapton stopped by, uh, Billy Preston, Klaus Voorhees. Dr. John. Dr. John, uh, Harry Nielsen right. was on this. It was produced by Richard Perry. Um, I mean, it's just a legendary <laughs> record. I think the only reason my understanding was Paul McCartney did do overdubs on it, but he had to do it in England. They wouldn't allow him in the country because he had a pot bust or something. That's that's correct. Yeah, and he actually. couldn't get in, but otherwise yeah. he wow. probably would have been on the session too. Yeah, it's the last record we're all that I know of. Could yeah. be wrong. You're the expert here. Uh, it's the last record that all four Beatles were were on. Was the first that Ringo record done here? Yeah, but Paul overdubbed in England and they dropped it in. Bill Schnee Engineering on that? Um, Bill Schnee Engineering, yeah. Holy cow. And very young Bill, <laughs> very young Bill Schnee. I guess it was one of his first gigs. That's what's so crazy That's about what he told Even us. Bruce Bodnick. When did Bruce start here? He was doing the Doors album when he was like 19, 20 years old or something? 20 years old. That's what was the record Al Schmidt did here in the early days? We had something listed. Um... Speaking of Al Schmidt, I think I can speak for everyone here in the studio that we send our condolences to his family. He was a good yeah. friend of Paul's father. Yeah. Uh, we shared a wonderful story on our uh, social media. Legend in the business. Very sad. Yeah. Extremely nice man. And a bit of talent, too. Yeah. My Had God. you met him, Brian? Yeah. Numerous times? Yeah. There's not a bad word to be said about him. No one uh, does anything but hold the recordings alone. And it's as a person beside that highest regard from yeah. pretty much everybody. And, of course, one of the biggest records sales-wise ever out of here was Toto 4, which was one of his projects, too. But and this we room, find one? Was, Earth, Wind, no, and Fire. Earth, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Fire. The Need right. for Love, uh, 1971. That's Al Schmidt. Yeah. Very cool. Paul, anything on this reminds me. I'm just uh, I'm sorry. We've got uh, three Stones records here. We've yeah. got Beggar's Banquet, which you've got it out there in your lobby. We've got Let It Bleed, which the record's also out there, and, and Exile on Main Street. So... Any recollections on on those three three records? So out of those, the one that I have the most rec recollection on is Exile on Main Street, because I think that was 71, something like that. So, yeah. you know, the other ones, I was much, you know, much younger at that time. Well, I mean, yeah. Span of a few years, but younger for me. Sure. <laughs> sure. So and that was mixed in studio, too? It was, yeah, it was mixed in Studio 2. I think Jimmy Miller was the producer. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, they had they had been in the south of France with the mobile truck, and they had recorded it there. And then they, um, they migrated to Studio 1 um, and did the overdubs there. Because we have a lot of pictures of uh, Mick and Keith in Studio 1 overdubbing. Yeah. And then when they were ready to mix, they moved into 2 on the sound techniques. And it definitely was mixed in studio too. Um, why, you might ask me why, how did we get that? You know, um, you know, we were a popular studio then, but my dad had a contract with London records and he was doing classical mm -hmm. records. And the head of A&R was a really close friend of ours. And um, I think that that must've had something to do with it. I, I can remember, being with my father and I was probably like 14 or 15. I was down here at the studio and he said, um, uh, Hey, you want to go to the airport? Uh, we're going to take, um, 
the A&R guy from London, which uh, I have to think of his name, but he goes, we're going to pick somebody up there. And I said, okay, yeah, I'll go with you guys. So we, we jetted down to LAX, you know, and, you know, the, you know, from here, it's not that far. There wasn't that much traffic back then. So that's when you could go to the gate and pick people up. Mm-hmm. Well, out of the gate comes Mick Jagger <laughs> and we're picking him up. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh my God, that's Mick Jagger. So yeah. And, and they're talking business. He's, you know, he's in town to, um, promote a record or something and we're all in the car and he came back to sunset and he was hanging out here for a while and i was just like oh my gosh but so you know maybe that's why we got a lot of the london work because of the connection with london brian i got a question for you uh do you feel like back in the day because from my point of view and the research that i've done i can see these i can see these patterns shaping in regard to our company with bands specifically rolling stones uh, and, and others, but Rolling Stones, you know, you see them working in Trident on Get Your Yaya's Out, other different ones. And all around that same time, they seem to end up at Sunset. Yeah. They they seem to end up at Electra. These are all sound techniques. Right. Give Me Shelter, that crazy great vocal overdub that she sings on the song that makes it great was done over there late at night one time. Mary Clayton. Yeah. And, that, and, wow. and Glenn John's, you know, the, sound, the Glenn John's uh, Sound Man book. Where you got Charlie and Keith on the front with with Glenn, that's the uh, that's the Sound Techniques console in front of them at Electra on the Let It Bleed sessions. Oh, it is. Yeah. Uh, wow. So I don't know. I've just seen a lot of these bands. If you're as you're connecting the dots with these, if they people move around, you know. And I I was telling you earlier. I don't know if I ever told you the story about um, the Rolling Stones buying a Sound Technique System Twelve for the studio and dynamic down in Kingston, Jamaica. Oh, yeah, you told me this yesterday. Oh. You got to do yeah. this. The Stones are in trouble with taxes, and they got to get out of England and so on. So, so everybody knows that story. So um, there's this guy named Byron Lee who owned a studio down there called Dynamic Sound um, in uh, Kingston. And I've got a copy of this. It's in a book. Um, but he says, one talking about the Rolling Stones in Jamaica, he said, one day I get this call from England, and it's Mick Jagger on the phone. And he says, hey, uh, Keith wants to come down and record in Kingston. Get out of here. Um, and so he said, well, he said, what kind of gear do you have down there? And he said, we've got four track and a couple tube pre's and, you know, a few bag full of microphones. And so he said, Mick says, look, we'll buy all the gear and send it to you. Wow. And we're going to do a record down there. And whenever we're done, you can keep all the gear and you don't charge us any studio time. And he said, that'll happen. That's great. That's how the first Sound Technique System 12 got into Kingston. The record was Goat's Head Soup. Um, After that happened, and everybody from Paul Simon, Mother and Child Reunion, Cat Stevens, Foreigner, um, and all those reggae records came after that because Randy Studio 17 on Parade Street in Kingston, they bought a brand new Sound Technique System 12. And so that whole reggae dub music of that part of the world is there are deep, deep roots. And Joe Gibbs studio, Peter Tosh. uh, It's obvious. No, I'm just thinking of the connection. Maybe they, you know, they worked on the sound techniques here. Maybe that we like that console. And then that's why they had that brought that down to do goat's head suit. Yeah. Well, they had, they had worked on the the sound techniques at Trident at Delane Lee. They had done, you know, many. So, well, you mentioned the name System 12. That's a 
Yeah. The next evolution, Sound Techniques made those A-range consoles in different formats uh, for a while. And then System 12 was like the 70s, kind of an updated version, although I don't know if it's as full-featured maybe, but it certainly, they had a little bit more compact design to it. You could fit more channels in then, and, and there's some great promo pictures of those boards. Yeah. I've never seen one in my whole life, though. I haven't, but I did talk to Clive Chin, who's Randy from Randy Studio 17 in Kingston. Uh, they still have it down there. Yeah. And there's pictures of it online, and it's amazing because it's, it's just classic picture. It's like this record store up front, Randy Studio Records and Studio. And they've got in the back all these this old tube gear and all these mm. reel-to-reels and the sound technique system 12 still sitting there. Wow. And, then, and I talked to him. I said, well, how long was it in the studio? He said, we put it in in 1970 and we recorded 70, 71, somewhere around there, whatever that time was that they recorded over at Dynamic Sound. And he said, we recorded everything until we closed up in the middle 80s. It's definitely a new thing that is exciting to us because people get to hear and decide whether they like it or not. But most of my friends, when we plug into you know my two original channels and the two reissue channels, if you will, are at first, of course, like I said, I love the originals and the other ones were 90% there. But now with the Transformers, Danny spent a lot of time just figuring out what the hell is that Transformer by doing this crazy metallurgy and stuff, right? Yeah, that's, you know, one of the things, um, and I I want to get back to the Sunset Sound uh, two-rack unit. that. Uh, but one of the things about that is that Jeff, did, he didn't have the Transformers right, okay? The the transformers were a, it's a five eighths lamination. It's it's a very complex winding on the output, and it's it's fifty. They called it radio metal back then, radio yeah. metal, which is essentially fifty percent nickel. Yeah, they today they call it uh, high perm or uh, perm alloy fifty, and then everything else was eighty percent nickel. So you know what they would call high mu eighty if it's a carpenter product or if it's a vacuum schmelzer, it's whatever alloy seventy nine. Anyway, you had to figure out what that alloy was. So the alloy, we we put the alloy, uh, the transformers through a spectrometer at the Hewlett Packard lab. And we had Paul Wolf and some friends at Pulse Techniques uh, help us out with that. And so we actually measured all of those alloy properties. These are original transformers. These are original. I destroyed original irreplaceable transformers to, to be able to, information. to get this information. So we had to do that. There was yeah. no choice. And the same thing was true for the mic input transformer, which had multiple taps. Another, because as you've stated earlier, all of those impedance selections all go through the, the mic input transformer. Yeah. So this was a very long, long process. And um, we had a lot of help, not only from people here in the States, but uh, our, our crew in England. I mean, we have two of the finest engineers um, in the world working on sound techniques from the very beginning. And, um, and that is Gareth Connor and Graham Mills. Mm -hmm. They are the true brains behind what we do. We do all the mechanical stuff here. I take care of all the, I designed the extrusions. I did all the mechanical stuff. Um, and, but all of the electronics with sound techniques is all done in the North of England. Actually it's in Hebden bridge, just six or eight miles away from Burnley where AMS Neve is. So um, our guys, uh, you know, Graham was with CalREC for 30-something years. He was with AMS Neve for six or seven years. He was the chief chief guy there. Um, and uh, 
Gareth was with uh, Focusrite back in the Focusrite studio days. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a technical uh, in, uh, spec uh, guy with uh, Soundcraft for 10 years. He designed all the, the, the headphone systems in Studio 3 at Abbey Road. These, yeah. are, these are the kind of guys we work with. Uh, Neil McCombie, which is... Uh, it's been really great for us because Neil is like the top Neve 88R uh, tech in Europe. And he takes care of, uh, uh, what's the studio? I'm sorry. Queen recorded Bohemian Rhapsody. Rich. Uh, oh, Rockfield? Rockfield. In Wales. Sorry. Mm. He takes care of Rockfield. He takes care of Britt Grove. He takes care of lots of different studios. So we've had this other side with Neil, the technical, uh, the uh, service side of it. And it's this interesting Thing that happens like okay that's a good idea but how can we service that uh, how can we get to it how can we make it easier for a studio owner to say hey oh, we got an amplifier that went down because we all know you've been in a lot longer than me you know i was on music row for 13 years doing the publishing demos for all the majors and all that and if you have something go down you got labor you got union labor you got to get back up fast you know, so this was a big thing about what we did with Sound Techniques is how can we make it very, very fast for a studio owner to fix something of ours if it happens to fail? And that's where Noma Combi really came in with his, not only 88R, but I, I saw a picture of him in there one time working on uh, Paul McCartney's Helios, the little Helios yeah. desk he bought for Ram. Um, so all of these guys come together to make this team that we've got to uh, build what this is and to, to get back to the beginning, you know? There was a time when this thing was going to be relaunched and uh, Jeff Frost had talked to John Wood, who had originally worked on a lot of the boards and decided to put up these prototypes. How did you get from the prototypes, which were kind of an adaptation of the original circuit, to what you're doing now, where you can make full consoles and sidecars too? What did you keep and what did you have to invent to make it the modern something? Right. Right. Well, there were there were a few things that were absolutely non-starters. Those are the transformers, inputs and outputs. Those are the amplifiers. Those were just that was completely off the table. Uh, we had to replicate that as close as we possibly could. I mean, we thought like in the Sunset Sound uh, two rack unit. Now this desk here, it's you know you don't have that mid band control. Okay, some one of the things that's different about the Sunset Sound uh, two rack unit, and it, it's basically a copy of the top half of the module in the ZR, is that um, all the bands are passive, as were the, um, the the Sunset Sound. It's all a passive passive equalizer, mm-hmm. except for the mid bands. The mid bands are are active, so that was something that Graham Milnes brought it from the table uh, to the table that we, we thought we needed to bring it up. I mean, so many people had two people, two groups of people with us. One side going, you got to build 500 series modules. That's what you can do. You can make a lot of money. Just take the brand name and build 500. And the other side going, you got to hand wire it all the way down to the end and, mm-hmm. you know, and make the PCB boards yourself in the kitchen or whatever. <laughs> and we came up with a combination of both of those, you know. So um, I would say that, you know the core amplifier, the, the the transformers and those things we we all we kept and everything else we tried to make as modern as you know we kept keeping the discrete design, but also highly highly serviceable. Mm-hmm. Literally, if an amplifier goes out in one of our modules, 
there are seven screws in the top board. There's one screw in the top, top of the amplifier with a, with a uh, header pin. You pull it out, you put a new one in with one screw and you put the top back on, you're back in business, literally five minutes. So those are the kind of things that are really important to sound tightening. There was, so you can, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. You can hot plug your modules on, we the, can. on the console. Right? That's so another Graham. Do that. That <laughs> well, cool. you know, I, when, when Graham did that, he, I said, this is, this is crazy. You're scaring me here. Cause he's so now, hot this. plug means for those that don't know, taking the console strips out, will scan this photo in. But when you pull out a module to work on it, you've disconnected the power from it. Yeah. And if you slam it back in, the power gets slammed into it. Not necessarily bad, but sometimes can be bad for various machines to pull something in and out while the console's live. Right. Yeah. When he first did this, when we first got the console up for the NAM show, the big 48 one that Andrew Ratcliffe owns at uh, Tweed Recording in Athens, uh, I thought I was going to lose it because I thought, this is crazy. But he said, no, this is fine. And he said, I said, when he did it, and he just it was just nothing. I said, well, how did you figure that out? Because I don't, I've never really been around that before. And he said, well, I figured it out for the Olympics. And I said, what's that about? He said, well, he said, I ran like for Olympiad for, for, with NBC and they used all CalRec consoles, uh, for their broadcasts. Yeah. And he was in charge of all of that work for the Olympics. And he said, if we had something goes da go down and we got numerous sporting events going on, you can't just turn everything off. You have to be able to hot plug and go because it's broadcast. So that is a 100% broadcast feature of the Sound Techniques ZR, but it's awesome. That's very cool. That's a t-shirt right yeah. there. Hot plug and go. Hot Sound plug and go. Uh -huh. Get back Get back to music. That was a moment in the long arc history of this company that there was an, a NAM show here in Los Angeles. They have the convention for musical instruments and musical products that is worldwide. German, Japanese companies come out. And you can buy everything from your Fender Stratocaster to your strings to power amps from China. But in the middle of the professional audio wing of this thing was a giant booth with a big orange carpet, <laughs> which you could not miss, big orange shag rug, and a huge console. When everybody and most was showing something like a channel or two, or maybe a sidecar, if you wanted to buy a, I won't name names, but just small companies had maybe 16 channel things. Here was an enormous, vintage-looking, bigger than these boards, console, oh, yeah. um, back like the old days, with meters, with mm. channel strips. It was mostly functional, and Ken Scott was brought in to play tracks like Rocket Man and Daniel, things he'd recorded, and he was mixing them for you. You could go up to the board and mix Daniel yourself and play with those tracks while he had them it up. Magic, it was incredible. Man. It was really. And, and it yeah. was the, the sheer size of it, just in that people said, that's a real console, that's the way they used to record. That's the kind of uh, design they're going for. And then you could pull the channels out and show people how big right. the transformers are and how it's wired and things like that. So that made a lot of people aware. And it was certainly put, like putting a flag on the moon saying, we're here, you know. I remember sitting down one time. We had the old, you know, the old like turn of the century, not turn of the century, but mid-century furniture in the 50s, kind of the 60s yeah. vibe going with the big shag carpet. And I sat down for a moment and literally within a couple minutes, there was a couple walked by and they said, the first couple said, wow, look at that. That thing is amazing. And then literally not two minutes later, another group walked by and one of the guys said, why would anybody build that? I'm not, I'm quoting. And yeah. I just almost fell over laughing. I was, it was just a, a perfect moment um, at the NAM show, but that was fun.
All right, Danny, I am super curious though. 2015, you know, you're very accomplished in all these different things. You wrote a great book, you built studios, you ran studios, you've been a musician. Six years ago, you decided to purchase sound techniques. Right. Obviously, that's a very cool idea, but yeah. what was your initial thought process that you're just going to revive this company that's been dead for decades? Well, but you um, already have. <laughs> you know, I I, I knew that none of nothing nothing like this can be done by one person. So uh, yeah, uh, I called my friend PH Nafa and I said, "Look, I you know I'm going to do this thing, and I can't do it by myself. I'm going to need some uh, you know some help." I said, "You want to get involved?" So he said, "Yeah." So PH and I, my wife, um, we uh, we bought the company, and uh, I flew over there in 2015 to to make the everything happen and pick everything up. So, you know, we've got this sound crew over there. It's kind of funny, you know, the, the sound crew that you did the interview for, yeah. for this documentary. Great guys. Uh, and uh, so they're over there and I'm literally, you've been to Jeff's house. It's in the carriage house in the back, like a 17th century. They used to have, keep horses in it. Yeah. In the beautiful countryside. A beautiful I mean, home. Wow. Um, and so we're over there and we're going through all of these things. He's got stuff, as you know, he had a workshop in his house. He had stuff everywhere. So I'm going through and we're loading all of this stuff into a container and going through everything. And uh, as I'm going through this, I'm realizing that this is, this is something that's pretty big as far as this is like a company that's kind of the last of the Mohicans, so to speak. For yeah. English audio companies, there they've there's never been a sound technique software plug. Maybe there will be one day. There's never been any rack units. This is well, we did do some a limited limited run, but this is our first real production that's ever been done on sound techniques. The rest of the rest, the one that we did earlier was more like a we built some for some friends and and some things like that on very very low volume. So we bought the company and you realize, you know, it's kind of like, this is a big responsibility. I'm flying home on a plane with a bag full of transformers and inductors <laughs> and some schematics. And I'm like, oh, I'm hearing God save the queen play and the English flag coming down. I'm like, this is it, man. If you screw this up, your reputation's shot. So we felt like we, <coughs> we had to go for the, we had to go for it. We had to actually really build a console or nobody would ever take the lineage of the company serious. And I still believe that that's true today. That decision has cost us six years. Um, and um, I feel like it was a good decision. It's the long run. We're, we're playing the long game. We're, you know, we're not going to, we're playing hit and run. What's the console that you made a few of them you, you have sold is the, yeah. the VR? Uh, um, the, no, the ZR. The ZR. I'm yeah, sorry. the ZR. Um, so uh, they're the, the, um, uh, first consoles went to Andrew Ratcliffe, who's part of the Sound Techniques crew um, down at um, uh, Tweed Recording in Athens, Georgia. That's a beautiful facility, brand new, in a vintage building down there. Um, Andrew has a 32-channel console that we built. It was actually the, the, the NAM console that we shortened for him to 32. And then we built some sidecars for him. And uh, so he was the first on board. He was the guy that kind of stuck his neck out there and said, I think you guys can do this. And he sold his Trident A range to be able to fund it. Um, so, um, and then uh, we built um, we built some a small run of units and 
This last desk is going to, it's a 16 channel. It was in Mix Magazine a couple, well, about six, eight months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going down to Jeffrey Kane's place uh, in Alabama, uh, replacing a very cool old Neve down there. And then um, beyond working on these last night before I come up here, um, I was working on those and the job at Sleeper Sounds. It's a studio in London. It's like in the Regent Park area. It's owned by a guy named Guy Chambers and uh, Richard Flack. Do you know that name, Brian? No. Yeah. Well, he was the Robbie. Will- he did. They did all those Robbie Williams records and stuff like that. So anyway, they had an old EMI TG console over there, which was a X Abbey Road mobile unit for many years. Mm-hmm. And um, so he said, "Hey, we're we're thinking about letting this go, and we want something that's got a great discrete sound and has all the English, you know, everything English about it." And We've tried a couple of the companies and they're just not really working for us and said, can you, can you get us something to listen to? So uh, Andrew helped us out with one of his, he loaned us one of his, because uh, we can't build it that fast. So uh, one of the eight channel consoles sent it over to Sleeper and, and they loved it. So that's what we're working on right now. And, and it's, it's kind of a tall order to replace an X-Savvy Rode EMI-TG. Uh, yeah, you know, think so. better be pretty good. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where we are right now. And, uh, but this is, this is what's coming up. Yeah. Uh, let's get in into this weeks. now. So you and Paul Camerata here, owner of Sunset Sound, did this venture together. Tell me about that. You contacted him and said, Hey, I want to do this, uh, 2RU unit and let's. Well, first of all, I just yeah, drove up here quite a few years ago. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe right after we bought the company and just introduced myself to Paul, he's always been gracious and we, we've become uh, friends over the process. And, and we always kind of had this idea that maybe we would do something together. And this is conversation has been going on for years. It has. And, um, we finally got to the point where we said, let's do this, you know? And so Paul said, okay, show me what you got. And so we put this together. And we brought some units up here. We brought a demo unit up here, and Joe Ciccarelli used it, and yeah. some other guys around here, and loved it. And, yeah. And so Paul says, "Okay, you know, let's talk." And so um, that's my recollection of it. Paul. <laughs> no, that's it. You know, and um, you know, this is such an integral part of our history. And during a time that some incredible product came out of this studio, yeah. and a lot of it was on the sound techniques. And I think, um, you know, doing a collaborative uh, association with you of our history of, of the board that, that created so many of these legendary records was only natural for me. And uh, I think creating this uh, two-rack unit, two-rack unit is, is a great, uh, a great, don't we care for a minute, uh, homage to the past of the studio yeah, let me maybe? Say it's a yeah it's a great homage to the past of the studio in the sense of the equipment that we no longer have and has no longer been available right but now you're going to make it available to the public and you know a select few because these are going to be limited edition units yep. are going to be able to purchase this and utilize this uh, great piece of uh, equipment on their projects going forward yeah it's never been offered before um Tootie was integrally involved in this console as i've said before if it wasn't for that desk there wouldn't be yeah. there wouldn't be the rest of them in that form i noticed that it has some of the key features i was talking about like the uh input impedance on the front where you can switch between settings and so 
whatever you're running through it, it, you just get these options of tone that you can shape as well as the kind of famous to us, those have used the kind of famous EQ. It has this amazing crystalline high end that is like a magnifying glass. And uh, as you said, there are passive EQs on the high and low, which is like a Pultec equalizer. People like the way those sound. Passive EQ is very much like that. a natural sounding where you can boost the hell out of something, but it doesn't sound bad. And then you've got control with mid range, which the old ones never had before. Yeah. yeah. And some modern features on there. Okay. The original boards didn't have 48 volts. You know, the, yeah. that was something that if you had, you, you add that added that outside the desk. So anyway, we've got 48 volts on there. We've got a DI on there. Uh, things like that, that are, that are, what what people that are recording from home or in a major studio, yeah, uh, you need those kind of things. So we we weren't so we we weren't we weren't building this like you know upstairs at Chelsea Studio like they built the original <laughs> ones. You know, we we wanted to make sure that all the features were there that one would expect. But I love some of the parts like this little toggle switch is unique to England at the time. I'd never seen them before I got my modules, but the old '67 modules had these weird cool shaped toggles and you see them on some other English equipment. But at the time these were going to get put together, there was no such thing in the world. You couldn't buy those switches, no. right? Yeah. No. The the key lever switches are if you can find them, uh, they're only sold by a telephone company. They're 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 all basically telephone equipment mm. back then and they're like $150 a switch. So we custom made the caps for those to give it the right look. We're using a modern component behind the the front panel. Um, this, this is the first unit to fully utilize, uh, the new Elma switch that we've been working on with Elma Electronics in Switzerland. So instead of using a switch that is indexed by hand, so if it's a nine position switches, you're, you're putting your, your switch at the stop and the other, or the, the, uh, stop at the zero and the other one at the nine position or whatever it is. Okay. <clears throat> That's fine, but there still is that that ability for dirt and dust to work its way down and get into the switch over time, moisture, uh, the rest of it. So as a studio owner, and Paul and I can relate, we can all relate here, re-switching a console or re-switching a piece of gear is not something that you want to do. Um, and so... These new switches are completely sealed. This is an aerospace switch. Uh, we're the first uh, audio manufacturer to use these switches. Uh, completely sealed, completely pre-indexed, and you will. It's a, basically a lifetime uh, piece. They're not cheap. Nothing cheap about them. But there's, you know, we don't look at the pennies so much. You know, there's so much out there where a lot of companies will go, "Hey, I can save ten cents on a part. I need to do that," and I understand that. But we're just not that kind of, we're so small. It just, we're just not the kind of company that needs to do that. And yeah. we'd rather put the best components and go, we're not going to see that unit probably ever again. And that's what we want. We want reliability, serviceability, if there is an issue. And that's what is important in, in working studios. You're, uh, these are going to be available June 24th? Uh, that's the schedule, June the 24th. And then you'll go to soundtechniques.com to inquire about these, purchase them. You can, yes. That's How many? 50. We've got a limit of 50. Oh, wow. On this. That's it. Yeah. Unless unless we decide to do another run. Uh, and we'll also have them up on our website. That's right. Them. Sure. Yeah. 
Also, the, the English design team on this. It's an American-owned company now, obviously, because yeah. mm-hmm. but English design team still in the UK? C- completely, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're cool. going to keep it there. You know, I mean, these guys, again, I've said it before, but these guys are just, I can't say enough about them. They are, they really, truly are special people. And if I have any real talent, uh, it's the ability to convince people that are much smarter than me to come and work for me for some reason. <laughs> Uh, I have a knack for it, but uh, we're never going to change that. It's always going to be an English designed piece. All of our stuff will be designed over there. Some of it will be assembled over there, and it's we're already starting that process to hit the European and the, the UK yeah. market. Um, but anything for South America or North America, the Orient will be done here in California. They look amazing. They're, it's the coolest design I've ever tall. seen. It's it's the Sunset Sound. I mean, we talked yeah. had yeah. to have the Sunset Sound look. Yeah, I think it definitely is uh, conveying that. It's definitely you know high end gear, and I think the it's a mic pre, it's EQ. People have experienced that before with their different flavors, but it's a chance for people to kind of hear this and see what it does for them. And I, I just think over the years, it's been one of those unique things that we all know what eleven seventy six does, or an LA two, or an API. Yeah. It's very familiar to most people, and they're. They're go-to bread and butter tools, but it's nice to have something different that kind of wakes you up and says, yeah, hey, this fresh. is cool. Uh, we know some companies that put out English-type gear and retro thing, and as you mentioned, plugins are very common. That's probably how most people experience their Fairchild. They've never played a real one, but they've had a lot of experience with plugins. And you can say that it's a good version of the original. So I look forward to people getting to play with these kind of things and getting the sounds out of it see what they can do. Yeah, yeah I look forward to uh, getting it in the studio now. Where are we putting it to from here? I, well, Three? I put it in a floater unit so we can move it around oh, cool. uh, yep. rather than hard mount it, you know. But um, I think it's going to be great because we have a lot of vintage uh, clientele that comes in here. I mean, Big we still time. do tape once in a while. And I can't wait to expose this to them. I'm but sure it, it'll be a, a very popular unit. As we I, all know with producers, with you can make a record with anything. It could be the dumbest thing. We could make right. a record with it if you're good. Um, it's... It's more about the guitar player than what guitar they're playing. But as we all know, and if you have a better something on your end, be it a mic choice or a preamp, it can really help you make something good. But just as much, I think the excitement factor, if I said, look, I've got the plain Jane, what everybody else has, you're not excited at all to plug into it. But having your producer or your artist wake up and say, oh, I'm excited to hear this. It may just be that factor that makes them do something a little better that day. That's funny you say that because I always kind of thought that about guitars, you know, mm-hmm. or keyboards. If you sit down in front of something or you pick up a guitar, like if you pick up a pre-war Martin, mm-hmm. you know, I've got my dad's old 1939 J200. Wow. I, when I pick up that guitar, I play different mm-hmm. than when I, when I play maybe something else. You know, it's kind of like gear. I mean, when you, when you get in front of a, one of these consoles at, at Sunset Sound, it's going to sound different. You're going to play different. The immediacy of that whole thing is going to make it a different end product. And that's what I, I agree with you hundred percent. I always have really. When I first got the old, old units I have, and I was playing with them, they distorted really well. And I was like, wow, it's something you don't really expect. But Jeff said, he goes, no, I knew rock and roll people would, would drive these really hard. That's one of the sounds people use is to push it really hard. And that was the key where the transformer, when it's getting hit hard, it has more of its sound when it's being pushed to the limit. And that's when you guys took months and months to just figure out what is that component because it's so important to the sound. Yeah. And if Paul likes it, people absolutely love our Sunset Sound plugin, which is available on IK Multimedia. 
which is another great homage to the mm-hmm. past of this studio. But this will be the second item that we've had come out besides that, right? Besides our Mike Pre, yeah. 500 oh, series yeah. Mike Pre, but uh, I think this is a great addition. It's sharp. Us. And you're going to continue on with Sound Techniques doing new equipment in the yeah, coming years? Yeah, we've got, uh, gosh, we've got a summing, we've got a summing mixer coming out. We've got a four, um, we've got a four gang mic pre. Uh, we've got a mastering compressor EQ and then a standalone compressor. There's probably eight, six to eight oh. brand new products that we're, 18 months, we're, we're on that path. I'd like to interject. The story about Sound Techniques is so fascinating. And obviously with the studio, kind of what I do and Paul and I've been working on for the last year or so is finding the documentation, the pictures. Yeah. You know, if anybody out there has pictures or was involved with any of these famous sessions, please contact us through our social media. Go to soundtechniques.com, sunsetsound.com. We can arrange anything to get a hold of those because, I mean, we've been trying to find Zeppelin photos for a long time. Absolutely. And there's Um, people that were involved with us. We know that. Absolutely. I know, Paul, you're looking for uh, photos of Elton John and Ringo on the piano. Yeah. uh, Trying to, with documentation. They're out there. I just don't have them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Zeppelin photos are are a bit of the, uh, one of the crown jewels, you know, that they're very hard to find. Uh, But they come up. Drew, they really do. Uh, three weeks ago, I got Ken Scott uh, mm-hmm. uh, sent me an email and said, I just got this from this photographer from down in South America. And it's a picture of Ken and John Lennon in front of the Sound Techniques desk in Studio A at Trident mixing Give Peace a Chance. Yeah. And he said, <laughs> cool. it's like, it, it's only only in Sound Techniques does this, and in places like Sunset Sound does this stuff, stuff happen. So... I find out about this guy. His name's Luis Garrido. And it's a fascinating story about how he meets John and Yoko in the summer and the spring of 69 or whatever. And then they meet down in the lobby. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And John just says, why don't you just come on with us and travel with us for the next few months? And so he goes to Montreal to the bed in wow. and he's taking pictures and he's got pictures all over Trident and everything else. And it's just that's how this stuff can can happen. But yes, we're all looking for these photos, and yeah. it's important for the historic documentation. Speaking of mystery, the consoles we see in the pictures you're talking about, almost all of them are gone. Like no one knows where they are. There's very few. I mean, there's a few channels left. There's right. one board left, right? Mm-hmm. Of the old ones, maybe two or three, yeah. but they disappeared. They're gone. Um, I don't think that there there is one console that's together, uh, that's being restored by a private party uh, in Dallas, Mm. uh, Texas. Um, But there are 67 modules, and I think you and I probably both know where all of them are. Uh, 67 original Trident uh, or uh, Sound Techniques A-range modules out there. Mm. Um, And I've never seen another console together. I know Sunset got broken up. Um, I think you you said one time maybe your dad sent it to South America or Whoa. I don't know where it is. I mean, yeah. I ha- he's it's, the only one that would would know, and he's not with us. So. We just found out it was broken up the last year, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it was broken you were still up, looking but for I don't it. know where it is. Yeah. And I don't remit. I don't have any any idea who we sold it to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously Electra's broken up. Trident. Neither of the Trident consoles. There is not gone. I mean, they are like. 
completely gone. There's not a screw or a bolt left out of that wow. thing. But people so, threw away old things that were big and heavy. And you know, yeah. years ago, people tried to sell stuff and nobody would buy it. It's too big. Yeah, too much yeah. trouble. And it's old. It's already having problems. You know. Yeah, and, and that stuff. I mean, at that time, you were moving. You know, okay, so it's an eight track. This was an eight track console. Yeah. Okay, well, by 1974, eight track is ancient. They're, yeah. they're, they're already you're, they're already took looking at locking up 24 track two inch machines at that time, or pretty close to it. Yeah. So, I gotta. I want to go through just a list of the albums again. Starting in '67, Love Forever Changes, Alice Cooper, Muscle Love. Bonnie Bramlett, Sweet Bonnie Bramlett, which was done at what studio was that done at? Sweet Bonnie Bramlett. I thought uh, did I put it on there. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was Sunset Sound. Oh, really? Okay. If it's not Sunset, it's Electra. I could have missed that because she was working with the Stones, also. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah well, they, that's who they wanted. They wanted Bonnie to do the background vocal for "Give Me Shelter," and then uh, mm-hmm. I guess her husband didn't want her to do it, and okay. they got mm-hmm. Mary Clayton. Dave Mason alone together. Uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, The Need of Love, Frank Zappa, Hot Rats, which is the only photo I think we have of yeah, the, the of board the, here. Of Studio 2 with um, Frank at the board. Yep. Thanks to Paul, you found it in the L.A. Times. LA I couldn't Times. believe that's another there crazy a, one. A, yeah, there was Oh, tell article. that story. Because, yeah. Well, amazing. I was reading the time. I think it was like a Sunday or something in the calendar section. I'm flipping through this, and here's this article on, um, on Frank. And I started reading it, and I flipped the page, and I went, Whoa. I go, that's Studio 2. That's the sound techniques. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so uh turns out it was in the Hot Rats book. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a great picture. But I never had that picture. That was cool. Dweezil and I recreated that photo. Um, Hoyt Axton, Jackson Brown, For Every Man, The Rolling Stones, Beggar's Banquet, The Rolling Stones, Let It Bleed, The Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street, Ringo Starr, Ringo. So that would have been one of the last albums done on it. Ringo Starr, Ringo here, right? 73. Yeah, there was some done after that. Okay. Uh, Spooky Tooth, Spooky Two, which was Engineer Andy Johns, Tom Jones, The Body and Soul of Tom Jones, Wild Man Fisher, (laughs) that was a frank zappa that was a frank produced it yeah yeah yeah. he was on the label i think yeah Yeah. he he was on repress so that would have been the same year he did hot rats too um and captain beefheart was working on that that would have been done on that board as well yeah little feet sailing shoes ted Ted templeman Templeman. yep yeah and Uh, that and also the captain beefheart are both don wendy with ted templeman yeah Mm. yeah led zeppelin number two so we discussed that. Led Zeppelin 4. Led Zeppelin Physical Graffiti, 1975, included Boogie with Stu from the 1971 Sunset Sessions. Oh, yeah, that was a reissue. A reissue, right. and they added, not unlike Led Zeppelin 4, right. they had an extra tune. That's such never, a cool tune. It is. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that was recorded in Studio 2 um, and uh, recorded or mixed. I don't know whether I put it down there or not. But anyway... That was part of the sunset. That sunset session, uh, it just happened to end up on physical graffiti. So. Wow! Anything Zeppelin is the greatest. Leon Russell, nineteen seventy. Great. Um, mm-hmm. Music Emporium, nineteen sixty-eight. All girl rhythm section on that one. That is a great record. Have you ever heard that one? No. no. Music Emporium. The guy he just passed away. Bill. 
Lazarus. who was in the band. Bill, uh, no, not Bill. Bill Lazarus was the guy who who uh, engineered it. Oh, yeah. he was the engineer. Yeah, but Bill yeah. was the was the uh, leader of the band, and such a wonderful guy. He passed away a few years ago, but I, I he really had some great conversations with me about recording at Sunset Sound and just the absolute thrill of walking into the room. And at that time, that desk was still pretty new, '68. Really interesting LA psychedelic band, uh, all girl rhythm section. Uh, I have some other pictures, color of them in Studio Two that I haven't oh, shared with you. Really, love to see that. That huh. Bill sent me, so I'll have to get those to you. That's awesome. Did uh, Zolar X ever record at the <laughs> yeah, not Brian's yet, favorite man. band. He loves Zolar X. I even have a mask of them in my car. I'm enough. Oh, They're yeah, still making products. about that last time. <laughs> Roddy Bingenheimer was uh, sharing about them as well. So I didn't even know this. Ray Manzarek of the Doors did a solo album. Recorded and mixed by Bruce Botnick in Sunset 2. Yeah. They only worked in one. They mixed in two yeah. a little bit. But yeah. Uh, yeah. that was on the Sound Techniques board. Fantastic record. It's one of my favorites. Does that, he sing? Uh, yeah, he does. Wow, I in fact, it's that. famous for when Jim didn't show up or he was not capable of singing that night, that, that Ray would take over and do some door shows. There's a handful of shows where Ray sang lead on the shows. Wow. Yeah. Well, this is simply fascinating. And again, soundtechniques.com is going to have all the pictures up, the story of Sound Techniques from beginning to finish. Are you happy with what you've accomplished so far? So far, I think we're just now to, we're, we're starting right now. Yeah. It's taken us six years to start. And I think we're just getting going. Uh, just so happy to have the association with, with Paul and Friendship and Brian for coming over and, and you for setting this up. And the film crew here, guys are great. Yeah, Thank you very much. Amazing. I, you. This is, you know, right along the lines of what we want to do with this show is we're documenting the stuff. And this is such a homage to the past, which, you know, people are yeah. can have in their studios and their Pro Tools rigs at home. And so June 24th, these are going to be available online. Yeah. What are you got them priced at? Um, the price is $34.95. And um, that's not only just for the unit, but it's for some other things, cool things that we wanted to add in. Um, and I kind of took a page out of Brian's uh, Brian's book, uh, literally out of the Beatles book that they did, where he did the extra um, postcards and the fold out red fifty one and all that, which I just thought was dynamite. Um, we're going to add an original uh, uh, picture of the console. This is actually a transferred from a piece of film from nineteen sixty seven in London before they shipped Whoa. it to here at the studio. Uh, Paul is going to sign it. And that will be uh, that will be with the unit. We'll also have a um, T-shirt, and we'll have a ball cap that comes with it with a special logo c- commemorating this limited edition uh, venture. So it's not only that you get a little piece of history and you get yeah. some cool swag, and um, that's I think awesome. the price is right for that for what you get. And there's only a limited edition, fifty of them to start off, and. Right now, that's that's yeah. all that we're. But Paul and I have talked about doing, and it, we'll great. see what happens. All right, Mr. Kehu, yeah. anything to add? No, it's exciting. It's good. <laughs> yeah, it's very. Can't exciting. wait to play with this myself. All right, anything else it's we need fun. to add? We're going to continue on with this. Hopefully, Bruce Botnick will be here next time. Ted Templeman, if you're free, come on down. He did some work on this. Um, Joe yeah. Boyd, as this well. Is exciting. Lots of records. Oh yeah. All right, well, gentlemen, well, let's... Uh, Thank you, Drew. Appreciate it. Water. Yeah, appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Thank you.